Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 51, The Battle of Five Armies. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords. Viscount Discount has been promoted to Earl Discount. They have been joined by Michelle, Baroness Leonbrun. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last time, we saw how Prince Rupert of the Rhine rampaged his way through the northern county of Lancashire. At Bolton, He led a sack that killed at least 1,000 people, including civilians, and left the town a burning ruin. His forces also sacked Liverpool, whose parliamentary defenders hurriedly evacuated to the sea when their earthwork defences crumbled under the Royalist artillery barrage. We also saw how his uncle, Charles I, narrowly escaped encirclement at Oxford, led William the Conqueror Waller on a wild goose chase through the Midlands before defeating him at the Battle of Cropperty Bridge. During this time, the king sent Rupert a letter, which seemed to tell the young prince that he was to relieve the siege of York and bring the army of both kingdoms to battle. Today, we'll see how well that goes. Back in York, Newcastle continued to buy time. On the 8th of June, he sent a letter to both Fairfax and Leven, suggesting that he was ready to talk. The commanders of the army of both kingdoms were well aware that Rupert was in the northwest, but they couldn't turn their backs on York, and in either case, they didn't want to abandon the siege if they could avoid it. Newcastle's letter was obviously an attempt to play for time, but what if it wasn't? If York peacefully surrendered, they could turn and annihilate Prince Rupert's force, so they went along with it. Newcastle insisted that negotiations couldn't take place while everyone was fighting, which is fair, and so he insisted on a ceasefire. This was agreed, and it lasted for about a week. 
a tent was set up south of York, especially for a meeting of the two sides on the 14th of June. Here, Newcastle put forward his conditions for surrender, and the Allied commanders put forward their counter-proposals. The greatest sticking point was the future of Newcastle's northern army. He insisted that it remain under arms and under his command, which neither Leven nor Fairfax could accept. Newcastle dragged it out for as long as he could, but it became clear that there was no way past this point, and the talks broke down. The ceasefire ended, and the siege resumed. Over the following days, parliamentary artillery broke through York's wall in several places, and both sides tried to storm the walls or sally forth respectively. But neither side was prepared to commit properly, because both sides knew that Rupert and his army of 6,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry was nearby. Newcastle didn't need to risk it, and the Allied commanders wanted to preserve their strength for the young prince. With York clearly holding on, and with Rupert getting close, on the 28th of June, the army of both kingdoms withdrew from the siege, and took up position on a moor a few miles west of the city. But they maintained their cordon of sentries around York. If Rupert wanted to reach the ancient city, he would have to go through them. Except, he didn't. Rupert instead sent a large force of cavalry east, almost on a direct route to York, and hoped that the army of both kingdoms would think this was the vanguard of his entire army. The trick worked, and the Allied force watched as the cavalry approached, eyes peeled for the rest of the royalists. But instead, Rupert led the rest of his army north, crossed the Ouse and then the Swale, he looped around and surprised a Covenanter and Eastern Association force guarding a pontoon bridge. Rupert crossed his entire army over this bridge, and by the time the surviving guards reached the parliamentary lines, Rupert's distraction, Vanguard, had galloped east and reunited with Rupert. York was relieved. Newcastle must have been relieved too. What followed was a bit of miscommunication. Newcastle wrote to Rupert, who remained north of York's walls with his army, and thanked him for his assistance. Rupert took the wording of this letter as a submission to his command, which Newcastle had absolutely not intended it to be. Rupert, following the orders he believed he'd been given by his royal uncle, commanded Newcastle to prepare for battle the next day. Newcastle had his doubts about this idea, but he went along with this and agreed, only to then change his mind when his advisers persuaded him that a battle against superior numbers risked defeat and the loss of York. He would order his forces to join with Rupert's in the morning, and he rode ahead of the force and met with him at nine in the morning. Here, Newcastle tried to persuade Rupert that this was a bad idea. They were outnumbered. Rupert's army had just galloped across the north, and Newcastle's had just fended off a siege. The battle wouldn't be in their favour, and they didn't need to fight here and now. But Rupert informed Newcastle that he, quote, had a letter from his majesty with a positive and absolute command to fight the enemy, which in obedience and according to his duty, he was bound to perform, end quote. Now notably, even though he apparently brandished this letter, he didn't let Newcastle read it. If he had, maybe Newcastle would have highlighted a few ambiguities in the king's wording. 
In fact, though, the army of both kingdoms was divided over what to do as well. Fairfax noted in his diary that the English were in favour of fighting, then and there, but that the Scots preferred to retreat to a better position since reinforcements were on the way. With Leven as the most experienced commander and leading the largest part of the army of both kingdoms, the Scottish view won out, and they began to withdraw south to nearby Tadcaster. They were in the middle of doing this when the Allied rearguard noticed that the Royalists were deploying for battle. At the same time that Rupert and Newcastle were arguing in the Prince's command tent, the generals of both kingdoms dispatched orders to their vanguard, which had already reached Tadcaster. Get back here. Now. As it happened, they didn't need to rush. Both sides took their sweet time getting into position. Newcastle had arrived many hours before his soldiers, most of whom only left the walls of York after nine, and then got bottlenecked crossing a pontoon bridge. Oh, and they took the time to pillage the parliamentarian siege lines, abandoned quickly, with plenty of loot on offer. The infantry commander, the Scottish general James King, the first Lord Ethan, was deeply opposed to Rupert's plan, and was apparently dragging his feet in the hope the prince would back down. Rupert was impatient. He'd wanted a much earlier battle, to strike while the army of both kingdoms was still assembling, but since Newcastle's garrison was taking so long to arrive, he had to satisfy himself with a few cavalry raids. By 3pm, the armies had assembled and taken position. Newcastle's infantry had mostly arrived, and the army of both kingdoms was still waiting for stragglers from the aborted withdrawal. But the bulk of both armies had assembled. The Royalist force, made up of Rupert's army and Newcastle's garrison, commanded around 11,000 infantry, 7,000 cavalry, and about 25 pieces of artillery. Dwarfing them, the army of both kingdoms, the combined forces of Leven's Army of the Covenant, the Fairfax's Northern Army, and the Earl of Manchester's Eastern Association Army, had mustered 20,000 infantry, the same number of cavalry as the Royalists, around 7,000, and three times as much cannon, 75 pieces. Present on Marston Moor that day were many names we've seen plenty of times over the episodes. Commanding the Scots were the Earl of Leven, Alexander Leslie, and David Leslie, the Earl of Manchester, Lord Fairfax and his son Sir Thomas, and the tried and tested Oliver Cromwell leading the parliamentarian armies. Against them were Prince Rupert of the Rhine, the Marquess of Newcastle, Lord Goring, Lord Byron, and Lord Athen. These are the leading lights of the Royalist and Parliamentarian and Covenanter cause. Between them, they commanded around 46,000 men, and the moorland they all stood on, Marston Moor, would go down in history as the largest battle in the English Civil War. The allegiance of the entire North, and the course of the entire war, was on the line. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. By mid-afternoon, the five armies had assembled on Marston Moor. After two years of fighting and learning and experience, gone was the mismatch of formations we discussed at the start of the war. Both armies were deployed in a similar style, infantry in the centre, cavalry on the wings. The Royalists placed all their guns near the front of their army, but the Allies split theirs between the front and the higher ground behind their lines. Marston Moor was crisscrossed with a number of ditches, and at least one of these was within Royalist lines, which they appear to have garrisoned with infantry. An artillery duel began with the artillery of both kingdoms opening up on the smaller Royalist force. After about four shots, though, the guns fell silent. With the two armies less than a mile apart, Lord Athen bluntly informed the prince that he did not approve of it, being drawn too near the enemy and in a place of disadvantage. To his credit, Rupert appears to have taken these comments seriously, and agreed to move the army back to give it more space. To this, Athan shook his head, simply saying, It is too late. Athan, then merely James King, had fought with Rupert in the Thirty Years' War, but if you think this history as brothers-in-arms made them keen to work together again, you'd be very wrong. At the Battle of Lemgo in 1638, Prince Rupert was captured, and the rest of the army defeated. King was commended for withdrawing his contingent in good order, the only part of the army that hadn't routed. In the years since, though, Rupert had blamed King's defensive caution for the defeat at Lemgo, and King had blamed Rupert's rashness for the defeat and his own capture. Six years later, King, now Athan, once again advised caution, and Rupert was once again dead set against it. But in this case, Rupert seems to have finally agreed with both Newcastle and Athan that with most of the day gone, thanks Newcastle, an offensive would be the wrong call. So then he made an even worse one. He gave the order for his army to stand down until dawn, 
there would be no fighting today. Someone should have told Levin that. The Allied commanders, watching from a hill now known as Cromwell's Plump, noticed that the enemy formations seemed to be losing cohesion. Men were sitting down, or wandering off to grab a drink, or otherwise looking for all the world like they didn't expect a battle. At around 6 or 7pm, the Allied commanders gave the order for them to advance about 200 feet towards the Royalists, and their artillery was brought forward with them. Then, to add to the drama, thunderclouds broke overhead and rain began to fall on the armies, as the army of both kingdoms struck up the drums, shouting their battle cry of God with us. The speed of the advance and the short distance between the two armies left the royalists scrambling to get back into battle readiness. Many didn't make it. Those in the ditch were suddenly and quickly overwhelmed, and a few small artillery pieces were quickly taken. The sudden downpour had extinguished many of the long matches the musketeers relied on to actually fire their weapons. Infantry from the Eastern Association managed to move onto the flanks of Rupert's personal infantry regiment, the Bluecoats, and Lord Byron's foot. In the centre, a brigade of Fairfax's infantry pushed the Royalists back. In these early moments of the battle, the only Allied infantry force that was struggling was a contingent of Covenant of Foot, who seemed to have struggled advancing past the trench they'd just taken. On both flanks, the Allied cavalry had charged alongside the infantry. On the right, Sir Thomas Fairfax's horse found itself limited by a narrow lane, with Royalist musketeers holding position on the banks above it, firing down at them. On the left, Oliver Cromwell led cavalry from the Eastern Association. His men had crashed right into a force of Royalist cavalry led by Lord Byron. The two forces were equally matched, and Cromwell himself was injured in the melee, shot in the neck by a pistol. After a short time, Prince Rupert charged into the fight, at the head of the Royalist Cavalry Reserve. But then, the sudden arrival of David Leslie's horse, charging into the flank of Rupert, turned the tide of the fight. For the first time in a pitched battle, Parliamentarian cavalry defeated their Royalist counterparts. Many Royalist cavalry fled, or were killed outright. Rupert himself was reportedly unhorsed in the fight, and had to hide in the middle of a field of beans to avoid being captured. Unfortunately, Lipscomb does note that the only source for this detail was a parliamentary rumour, and it's unlikely to be true. After all, if the Allied army knew the enemy commander had hidden in a bean field, why didn't they just go and fetch him? Back on the parliamentarian right, Fairfax had managed to drive off the musketeers, who had been such a nuisance to his charge. His second-in-command, a man called John Lambert, remember that name, had been countercharged by Lord Goring and forced back, but Fairfax nevertheless went on the offensive unsupported. He charged a regiment of foot on the very edge of the Royalist wing, routing them, and many of his cavalry chased after them down the road to York. Throughout all of this cavalry carnage, in the centre, infantry on both sides were fighting an incredibly fierce, short-range musket duel and push of pike. The Allies successfully claimed the entire trench which had marked the front of the Royalist line, but the Royalists had not been broken, instead retreating back to the second line in good order. Newcastle and Athen, commanding the infantry while Rupert was either leading from the saddle or hiding among beans, 
ordered their second line of infantry to advance through the gaps in the first line. Fresh and ready, the northern foot slammed into the infantry of both kingdoms, and the assault was especially intense on Lord Fairfax's brigade. That brigade broke, and as Newcastle's men pressed the fleeing men, Royalist cavalry came in to help chase the routing soldiers. This rout, right in the centre of Allied lines, was a disaster. Fear is infectious, and soon the brigade to the right of Fairfax's brigade broke as well. As these fleeing men rushed back through the Allied second line, they too started to waver. Another Royalist cavalry charge smashed into the flanks of the Covenanter Fifeshire and Midlothian regiments on the right, and their pikes were working overtime to keep the rampaging horses from breaking their formations entirely. For the men who fled from the right, Lord Goring's cavalry chased them all the way up Marston Hill, and began to raid their baggage. Another Fairfax infantry regiment, and some infantry from the Northern Association, broke and fled from the centre, and the remaining infantry were hard-pressed to hold back the Royalist forces. Things were not looking good for the army of both kingdoms. Their right wing had completely broken, and their centre was on the brink of collapse. And then, the entire course of the battle changed. On the Allied left, Cromwell and Leslie were showing their talent for cavalry command. With the Royalist cavalry dispersed, and the Royalist dragoons driven back by Parliament's own dragoons, the two cavalry commanders fell upon the Royalist infantry, again and again. Leslie combined his attacks with the Earl of Manchester's foot, and together they destroyed and broke regiment after regiment of infantry, rolling up the Royalist line of battle. For his part, Cromwell went behind the Royalist army altogether, avoiding the tempting target of the Royalist rear before looping around and catching Lord Goring's cavalry as they returned from Marston Hill. Goring had had enough time to see Cromwell coming and formed a line of battle, but it was a flimsy thing. His force was too spread out, and Cromwell swept into his cavalry and drove them off easily. Both of these attacks, Cromwell against Goring and Leslie against the infantry, occurred at the same time. Everywhere the Royalists looked, they saw their comrades being cut down, gunned down, or running for their lives. No one wanted to be the last one on the battlefield, facing the enemy alone, and so everyone ran, or surrendered, and begged for quarter. A notable exception were Newcastle's Whitecoats, an infantry force which had been ordered by Lord Athan to act as the rearguard for the rest of the army. They sacrificed themselves, continuing to fight, holding Allied attention in the centre long enough for the rest of the Royalist army, what was left of it at least, to evacuate the field. The entire Battle of Marston Moor took place over just two hours, from the start of the advance at 7pm to the retreat of Royalist forces at 9pm. Casualty numbers in this period are always tricky, but around 4,500 men were killed, and of these, 3,000 belonged to the Royalist side. As usual, the cavalry were largely able to escape. It was the infantry who died. Aside from Newcastle's white coats, surrounded infantry were, in Cromwell's words, stubble to our swords. If they did not surrender, and sometimes if they did, they were cut down. Likewise, those infantry who fled the field were pursued and killed all along the road to York, 
their bodies strewn across three miles. In the aftermath, blame for the royalist defeat was spread far and wide. Lord Byron, whose cavalry had advanced to meet Cromwell, would shoulder much of the blame for being too rash and attacking superior numbers while unsupported. Byron would resign his command after the battle, and the claims would only get louder after Byron's death in 1652. He could hardly defend himself now. Goring also received some hefty blame, especially when his and his cavalry's behaviour was compared to Cromwell, Leslie, and Manchester's foot. If the battle had been a mirror image up to that point, with the Allies winning on the left and the Royalists on the right, they diverged once Goring chased the enemy too far and allowed his men to loot the baggage. Cromwell and Leslie kept their forces together, and they remained a powerful battlefield asset. By letting his cavalry chase too far and allowing them to loot the baggage, Goring's cavalry was taken out of the fight. Cromwell just confirmed that when he drove them away. A contemporary, Sir Hugh Cholmley, noted at the time that if his, Goring's, men had but kept close together, as did Cromwell's, and not dispersed themselves in pursuit, in all probability it had come to a drawn battle at worse. The commanding officers were not spared from blame either. Rupert, as overall commander, would face criticism for Marston Moore for the rest of his life. His reputation for battlefield victories was shattered, and no matter how many times he waved this letter from his uncle, his apparent rashness and overconfidence had been displayed for all to see. He had, after all, led an exhausted army into battle against a force which outnumbered them by another half. It's hardly surprising that he then lost. Oh, and as petty as it seems to bring this up, when thousands of people had just died, Rupert's favourite dog, Boy, had also been killed in the battle. So you can add Marston Moore to DoesTheDogDie.com. Newcastle, despite having warned Rupert that a battle was a bad idea, and suggesting they wait for reinforcements, knew that his career was over. He had already battled his critics at Charles's court, and now he had no army, and the North would soon be lost to the king. York could not, would not, stand much longer. Obviously, Rupert would blame him for his infantry's slow arrival, thus depriving the prince of a morning attack, and Newcastle already had few friends at court. So, he took the advice of Athen, and took his second-in-command, both their families, and their retinues to Scarborough, where they boarded a ship for Hamburg. They would soon find themselves in Paris, at the court of the exiled Queen Henrietta Maria. In the immediate aftermath of Marston Moor, the Royalists fled back to York, and the Allied army stayed on the field overnight. Locals were conscripted to dig mass graves for the dead, while the army awaited reinforcements from Lancashire and Cheshire. While Newcastle went into exile, Rupert gathered his surviving forces, at least 1,500 cavalry and just 800 infantry, and he left York in the care of a skeleton garrison. He headed southwest to Chester, gathering another 2,000 men on the way. He would, eventually, reunite with his uncle. York itself was left under the command of Thomas Glemham. The army of both kingdoms reoccupied the old siege lines just days after Marston Moor. One contemporary described the moment, quote, Thus we were left at York, out of all hope of relief, 
the much distracted, and every one ready to abandon her. End quote. Despite this, when Glemham was called on to surrender the city, he refused. He needed to at least symbolically defend the city, even though it would never survive a siege. The army of both kingdoms established new artillery batteries, now furnished with royalist cannon taken from Marston Moor, and built another bridge across the foss. Once it was clear that the Allies weren't going to give up their prize for some strange reason, Glemham requested to negotiate on the 11th of July. Unlike a month earlier, this wasn't a play for time. Four days later, the terms for York's surrender were agreed, and the next day the gates were opened to Parliament. York had fallen. Over the next few weeks and months, royalist fortresses and towns across the north were besieged, assaulted, or surrendered without a fight. A few held out, such as Scarborough, but they were an irrelevance to the wider war. Charles I had lost the North. He would never hold it again. Next time, we will see how the Royalists in the South completely and utterly humiliate the Earl of Essex, and lead the Long Parliament to seriously reconsider how they were fighting this war. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marquess of Hull, Steve Cloutier, and Samuel Manker, Earl of Lindsay. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you know someone who you think would enjoy Pax Britannica, please let them know about it. Word of mouth is still the best and easiest way for a podcast to grow. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.